Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where myth and misconception gets a stout slap in the face and gets told to get over itself. The podcast where history can stand proud no matter what its husband is doing. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and king of partying himself, Kyle Glover. Well, A, anyone who's met me will say, no, he isn't. And B, you didn't say it right. It's the king of partying. Also... If you've ever been to one of Kyle's parties as well, they're great. There's jelly. Yes. But anyway, that's moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on indeed. Well, this week I've got good news for all you 17th century enthusiasts amongst you, as we're right back in your comfort zone talking about all things Stuart. We've done an episode on Charles II, we've done an episode on Cromwell, we've done an episode on the entire Civil War, and today we're going to redeem a royal reputation. To do so, we are joined by historian, author, and historical consultant for the BBC series Six Wives and the Berlins, Dr Linda Porter. Linda... Welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much, Paul and Kyle. I'm glad, glad to be here. Feeling angry? Um, perhaps a little irritated. Oh, good. Well, we can soon work on needling that <laughs> kernel of rage in there. Um, it was some of our uh, some of our quietest history rages have turned out to be the most violent. So uh, you could be in good company. But we're really glad to have you aboard. Yes. Now. It's, it's quite a CV that I've hinted at there. So, so would you mind, first of all, for particularly for the people out there who are not 17th century enthusiasts and may not have run, run across your work, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started down this route and how your career developed to where it is now? Oh, I'll try not to take too long about that because I'm one of these people that's reinvented myself several times. Um, you, you need to do this as you get older. There's no alternative. <laughs> And I started out doing a doctorate actually on the French Revolution. I was originally an 18th century specialist at the University of York, where I got my, my first degree. 
And then I moved to the United States where I met my husband and I lectured in various universities there, including Fordham University in New Mm -hmm. York and several others, some more distinguished than others, I would have to say. And uh, then, oh, years and years ago now, we came back to live in in the UK uh, because basically we couldn't afford to educate our daughter in private school in New York. It's very expensive. And public school allows you how to... uh, um, wield a knife but not necessarily how to be well educated Uh, and so uh, we came back here I needed to work for a living Um, I had been working only part-time as a lecturer it was difficult to get any kind of academic post in in the sort of late 70s early 80s -hmm. Uh, and so I went into the corporate world for nearly a quarter of a century actually and I worked in mostly corporate relations for for BT Mm-hmm. And then I left. Um, I took early retirement. It was a very attractive package. And I went back to research and writing. And uh, over the years since well, 2007, when my first book came out, I've written five books and I've now actually completed a six, which should be published next year. Uh, and they do cover the Tudor and Stuart period. I wasn't originally a Tudor historian. Mm. I knew a lot more about the Stuart period than I did about the Tudors when I started <laughs> out. But um, I mean, now my last book came out in 2020 and was on Charles II's mistresses. Uh, and that led to my interest in his um, uh, largely overlooked wife, Catherine of Braganza. Who we're going to be talking about today. Um, if I could just kind of raise a comment that you, you, you went over to lecture in history in the United States. Now, I imagine there's somewhat of a challenge for anybody with an English accent to be talking about the 18th century in the United States of America. Not in New York, it's not, because <laughs> they're such a melting pot. Yeah. Um, and they don't necessarily think that your accent is quaint, which they certainly do in the South. My husband is a Southerner, and I, I got a lot of, you know, how adorable I sounded when <laughs> I went down there, which made me far less adorable in reality, as you can probably man- understand. <laughs> uh, I, um, I, I know I never found it anything other than possibly an advantage in, in New York. And one of the, really? the interesting things was that I had I taught in the evenings. So I had a very wide range of students um, yeah. from all sorts of backgrounds, from Um, You know, certainly middle to even senior management in some of the courses at at Fordham, um, which is a very good university. Uh, And uh, I so I I never found my my British background a a problem there. There there are obviously slightly different ways of doing things. But you have to bear in mind that I hadn't actually lectured in the UK. I was a postgrad student when I went over to to New York on an exchange, in fact. And and of course, I stayed there. So, uh, no, I enjoyed it um, very much. Um, But that wasn't so much. What was more of a challenge is the huge range of sort of educational background of of people that I taught. I mean, I Hmm. well recall I had one young lady who asked me if Mary, Queen of Scots, went round Scotland by train. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have to deal with that kind of thing fairly tactfully, as you can imagine. In fact, most of the class told her she was an idiot, but, you know, they can do it and you can't, basically, so... I remember was, being at Warwick Castle once and this family very proudly announcing to, to the rest of his family that uh, you pointed very majestically up at Warwick Castle and announced that this, this is pre-1944. Like, he's yeah. technically right, 
can't argue with that. No. <laughs> if you don't know when the steam engine was invented, then yeah, so you don't if you lack that context. Mm, yeah, yeah, which she obviously did. Yeah. I mean, she she simply had no idea of when the steam engine yeah. was invented and had had to have it explained to her. Mm. Um, and and yeah, we I think we tend to, to take for granted um, as historians that people know more than they do, yeah. or, or at least we used to. I mean, one of the things, if I had enough time, I might rage on about is is just how glorified ignorance has become um, on social media, uh, and how you. It, I'm old enough to remember the time when if you were ignorant, you knew it and you kept quiet about it <laughs> uh, and, and tried where you could um, to, to increase your knowledge. There was no shame in it. There wasn't anything to be proud of. Mm. Uh, and more and more, I get the impression, certainly, you know, there are a number of ghastly Facebook groups dealing with the Tudors, not the Stuarts, interestingly enough, but certainly the Tudors, um, in which people who are unbelievably ignorant um, express all kinds of views and get extremely stroppy if you try and correct. Well, I tell you what, then, let's dive in and take on some of this ignorance head on. Then, so let's see how many, how, how many covert steward enthusiasts we can piss off. <laughs> so, so Linda, please, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our baying mob of history ragers what you feel? people should just stop believing? Well, I think they should stop believing uh, anything that that um, looks too pretty to be true. Uh, one of the things that I've always um, raged about, um, and again, this doesn't apply so much to the Stuarts, but it does apply to the Tudors, is what I would call the Disneyfication of the past, that they were all just like us, but in fancy dress. Uh, if the past is just the same as the present, why on earth should it be of any interest? And it, it, it completely sort of cuts out. The, the whole reason for me that as a child I became interested in history was that it wasn't like the way mm. the world is now. Of course, there are various continuities that, that, that one can see. And, of course, when you present this view to people, they say, oh, well, but people lived and loved and got sad and had sex and all that. They did in the past, of course, or none of us would be here nowadays. Um, but they did so often in, in a world that was framed very differently, a world in which um, in the 17th century, of course, as much as the, the, the 16th, though in different ways, the, mm -hmm. uh, the role of religion was vital in people's lives mm -hmm. in a way that it isn't mostly in our secular Western society. It, it may be in some others and is in some other societies now, but it certainly isn't in, in much of, of, of the secular Western world. Uh, and also many, many things have changed in terms of, of all, all sorts of everyday things like nutrition, medical knowledge, you know, one of the things that you'll find interesting, um, if slightly mildly distasteful um, when I talk about Catherine Braganza in a while, is the extraordinary ignorance about women's bodies and reproductive functions and, and all that sort of thing, which prevailed in the, the 16th and well into the 17th century, and what, even into the 19th, I suppose. But I, I, I do find the, this sort of trite view of, of, of the past that, you know, if we all dressed up in nice um, Tudor costumes and pretended to be like them, we would somehow understand both our 17th century and 16th century forebears. We wouldn't. Uh, well, you mentioned Catherine of Berganza there, and I do know that you've got to, you, you've got some seething rage 
particularly amongst that subject then. Now, I, I have to confess, I would be the first amongst um, my history community to say that I hadn't really paid much attention to Catherine of Braganza. So could you first of all tell tell us like who she is and 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 a little on how we, we misinterpret her? Well, Catherine of Braganza, of course, who if she's remembered at all in in this country, and I will make a complete contrast with how she's remembered in Portugal in a while, mm-hmm. was a Portuguese princess, um, the the wife of Charles II. Uh, she came from a very recently established dynasty, um, the Braganza dynasty, uh, from about 1580 onwards for 60 years. Um, Portugal had been ruled by Spain, as it had on and off throughout its very long history. I mean, the, the, they came together and diverged and came together and diverged. And it wasn't normally a, a happy coming together for the um, Portuguese because, of course, Spain occupies the larger part of the Iberian Peninsula uh, and its, its royal house nearly always had designs on the smaller partner. Though, of course, in the late 15th century, Portugal... Portugal became enormously wealthy because of mm. its empire. Um, many of the early explorers worldwide were Portuguese, of course, if, if you think back to Vasco da Gama and people like that. And so it, it, it's an interesting background because this, this young woman, she was in her early to mid-20s when she married, uh, was the daughter of, of John IV of Portugal and his, his rather formidable um, Spanish wife, uh, Luisa de Guzman, uh, who was from an old noble um, Spanish family. Uh, and John had come to the throne in, in around 1540 um, as a result of a revolt of the Portuguese nobility against the Spanish who were ruling them. He, he took mm-hmm. the throne somewhat reluctantly, egged on by his wife, it should be said, who, who as I said, was a very formidable lady. <laughs> uh, and uh, he had um, three children then surviving, of whom Catherine, the daughter, was the eldest, and there were two younger sons. Yeah. Uh, and he, he wasn't particularly keen to become king. Um, it, you know, unlike various uh, usurpations, almost, if you want that word, it's not quite fair in this case, because it was an acclamation that, that brought him to the throne. But, I mean, certainly mm-hmm. he's no Henry the Fourth, for example, in, in this country. Uh, so he, he became king um, and, and established the Braganza dynasty. His daughter was brought up in fairly guarded circumstances um she didn't travel very much but then neither did her papa he hadn't either um they were they people who liked their home comforts um it's often said that Catherine of Braganza was brought up in a convent though that doesn't appear to be true what does appear to be true is is that she had very little knowledge of the world outside Portugal Though if you look at a number of Queen's consort in various European countries, that's probably true of many of them, that they know Mm. little about the countries into which they may eventually be married. So Catherine was well educated, um, though not what one would call cosmopolitan. And she was 24 when she left Lisbon in great um, sort of party atmosphere with uh, um, fireworks and all kinds of public celebrations to become the wife of Charles II of England, um, mm-hmm. a, a role which um, might have daunted many princesses at that time. Yes. Yeah, as Charlotte White said, he is a tough puppy to keep on a leash. 
well, he wasn't interested in being kept on a leash, yes. of course, <laughs> and she certainly wasn't the the young woman to do it. Um, uh, she she wouldn't have spoken any English at that stage, though obviously she learnt it and became reasonably fluent in it. I think within a fairly short time of her her arrival in England, it would obviously have been a priority. She would have learnt a little before mm. she left, but but not very much. But the the reason that she was attractive as a proposition um, as an English queen consort was the enormous wealth of the country to which she belonged. Uh, she brought with her the largest dowry of any English, or I should say British in this context, of course, um, queen's, yeah. queen consort. So uh, it, it was the the uh, it was the empire, if you like, um, which was already in decline somewhat by that stage, but was still um, worldwide. Um, it gave the British access to uh, Brazil and the South American enclave, uh, the huge one of. Uh, the Portuguese Empire, to um, Portuguese North Africa, to the port of Tangier, uh, and also in particular to um, Bombay and those parts of India that that, um, the the Portuguese still ruled. Uh, And so uh, Catherine came to England with an extremely large dowry, much of which was never paid, incidentally. (laughs) I mean, when, um, when they tried to get the Portuguese to hand over the money, they got a lot of promissory notes and a lot of fair words. But they didn't necessarily get by any means all of the the money, and of course, as you know, um, Charles II was, like most British monarchs, but certainly perhaps more than most, extremely cash strapped. So the, <laughs> the the marriage did not bring with it, um, in reality, the promise um, at, at least of cash. It did bring an opening to to many key ports, as, as you would yeah. have heard from what I just said, mm. and therefore the trade possibilities that came with it. So going back to your earlier point of kind of Disneyfication and things like that, um, Catherine has a reputation, a reputation that, that was news to me, but then I'd not really heard of her that much. So, so how is she? how is she viewed wrongly at the moment? Well, I think she's generally viewed, um, firstly, as probably an irrelevance in in terms of Charles II's reign, with one or two exceptions, which we could get to in a minute. And also, as as you know, this hapless little creature who um, came across to um, Britain uh, wearing um, hairstyles and uh, costume, which were totally at variance with what was considered fashionable in London Mm -hmm. at the time, um, who... Sadly, and this does appear to have been true, fell very much in love with her husband, her, her handsome husband, um, a, a feeling which was not, of course, at all reciprocated. Though I, I think he developed a kind of uh, affection for her over the years, mm-hmm. but probably nothing more than that. And and then the view is that, you know, having um, failed to interest him or arouse him in, in any way, um, having taken on and lost a battle with his chief mistress at the time uh, and having uh, over the 1660s proven that she couldn't actually carry a child to term and therefore wasn't ever going to give him a legitimate heir. Uh, The view is that she she kind of retreated into religion and became a a, a sort of sad little woman sobbing away in front of an altar. Uh, And in fact, this isn't true at all. Uh, She became very much her own woman uh, mm-hmm. liberated from the necessity of trying to bear children uh, and able to um, build and develop a life and identity of her own. And, and that is not, I think, 
at all well known in this country. I mean, most people, if you, I'm not sure how many people would actually know who Charles II's wife was if if stopped on the street. But then if you stop people on the street, I imagine many of them will be affronted to learn that we were a republic for 11 years. Um, <laughs> can you imagine how well that would go down with readers of the Daily Mail and the Daily Express? Uh, but uh, I think Catherine is 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 regarded as someone we should all feel sorry for. And that is, in my view, a very patronising point of view that doesn't do justice to a woman who used adversity uh, to, to make a life and existence of her own, which was fulfilling and which did earn her eventually respect. Um, though, of course, as a Catholic queen, she became also um, a possible figurehead for anti-Catholicism, yeah. of which there was plenty around during well, that we'll, period of we'll time. We'll come to that uh, in a in a few questions time. So first of all, I'm going to kick Kyle off then with, yeah. with, with our first kind of frame question of the interview. So Kyle, fire away. Um, yeah, a lot, lot well, most kings have a queen and most kings also have a mistress, um, a, you know, a woman on the side, extramarital lovers, whatever you want to term them. Um, why is it that Catherine of Baganza in particular is singled out as being the unfortunate put-upon wife instead of, say, um, Elizabeth Woodville, what, uh, the wife of Edward IV? Why is it Catherine who's singled out for this um, treatment compared to other queens? Well, I think it's perhaps because of the uh, uh, the public interest which has been maintained for a very long time in, in Charles's many mistresses. I mean, you've mentioned mm. Edward IV yes. and Elizabeth Woodville. Um, Edward IV undoubtedly had quite a few mistresses, but I'm not aware, at least I don't think we, we know their names, apart from mm. Jane Shaw, perhaps yes. one or two others. But but um, the list with Charles is almost endless, and, and those are just the ones that, that we know about. Um, there, there may well have been other more casual liaisons. Uh, and I, I think it's this, this sort of ongoing eternal humiliation, if you like, as far as Catherine of Braganza has, is concerned, that has, has kind of singled her out for this. And the, the whole antithesis to the to the merry monarch type of thing. Mm. You know, how, how can you be um, happy and fulfilled when you've got a husband who, who behaves as Charles II did? Uh, and that this is a national scandal, um, whether Charles's apologists want to... to um, agree with that or not it, it was a scandal and offended a great many people at the time and not just puritans and i mean his own courtiers um I mean, the, the famous um, merry monarch thing comes from um one of the earl of rochester's poems you know restless he rolls from whore to whore a merry monarch scandalous and poor and he was thought to be scandalous in in his in his own time and i think mm. the the um other side of that coin is is this kind of uh uh, feeling of of sort of intense, not sorrow exactly, but 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 just sort of feeling very sorry for his unfortunate and hapless wife, um, and so she's become pigeonholed in that kind of uh, interpretation. Rather, has Charles has become pigeonholed as the Merry Monarch? Mm. You know, th there's obviously more to him than that, yes. and there is more to her than someone who was sort of cast aside for the next colourful mistress, whether from the nobility of the stage, from overseas or wherever. Uh, and people do, um, in such circumstances, make their make the best of, of what they can. And Catherine of Braganza did so in an interesting way. 
in which which most people are simply not familiar. I think the most that most people know about her probably is that that she arrived rather unheralded in this country from a, a, a what was an ancient ally Portugal mm. in fact of, yeah. of of Britain and of England, uh, and that that you know somehow. given Charles's proclivities, perhaps it's best not to think about the poor woman at all. (laughs) Well, I mean, mistresses and affairs are not, okay? You can't really remain as a queen consort for 23 years without doing something right and something making that happen. So... If we actually look at, and I don't want to make this all about Charles because we're we're all about Catherine, but it is an important factor. How were they actually as a couple? As a couple, I mean, they started off on a, on a very difficult footing. He met her at Portsmouth, uh, where she'd landed after one of these uh, voyages that, that, of course, made everyone on board violently seasick, <laughs> which is something, again, which I think we overlook about travel in, in those days. Yeah. You hardly arrive looking um, like a sprightly queen consort at Portsmouth when you've been throwing up at sea for about 10 days. Yeah. Um, but, but she um, And also she was having her period, um, which, which isn't the best way to, to start a marriage. Uh, I mean, I suppose at least with her husband, she had someone who was sexually experienced, which wasn't the same for all Queen's Consort, if you go back through history. Uh, so, so to that degree, she was fortunate. He also spoke um, Spanish, which presumably was their mutual language um, mm-hmm. to begin with. I don't think Charles was fluent in Spanish, but he could certainly speak enough. And and um, they they moved from Portsmouth to Hampton Court because it was the spring and summer and there was plague in London, even in 1662. Obviously, yeah. it got a lot worse a few years later, but there was plague then. Um, so she has this rather sort of false start of a, a literal honeymoon almost um, to her marriage. Um, they they had little contact with the outside world for quite a while. Uh, and, of course, um, Catherine does. I mean, Charles was, was um, uh, very... Uh, quite compelling physically to look at. He was tall, he was dark. Uh, The funny thing is, of course, that he was rather swarthy and so was Catherine. And his initial reaction to her, um, she had a Mediterranean colouring, which wasn't at all fashionable in those days, you know, to be olive skinned and dark haired. Uh, And uh, he, he reportedly and um, we don't know whether this is entirely true, but he reportedly said, you know, apropos of her hairstyles, she had one of these hairstyles that stuck out at the side, which were very common on the Iberian Peninsula then, that they thought he thought that his courtiers brought him brought him a bat. Uh, that isn't <laughs> the nicest thing to say about your wife, necessarily, your new wife. I mean, he said that, you know, she had nice eyes, which she did. Oh, um, yeah. And that she was a very, um, I mean, this sounds rather patronising, I suppose it was, you know, that she seemed a very pleasant lady and all that. But he was absolutely firm of the fact that she was to take, as one of her ladies of the bedchamber, his mistress, Barbara Palmer, Lady Castlemaine. Uh, and uh, I mean, there was this. <laughs> now, sorry, awful... if I could just. You mentioned a bad way to start a marriage. <laughs> Putting the other woman in, in the staff of your wife, that's really going to cut some. It is. Mm. I don't think Charles II was the only person who ever did that, no, actually. That's... But um, I, I mean, it, it, it was. Um, yes, I mean, it was a calculated insult. Uh, and he was advised against it by Clarendon, his chief minister, and others, and essentially wrote a letter saying, you'd better all shut up and sit down or I'll get rid of you. 
you know, I, I will do this. Mm. Um, and uh, Catherine, uh, who was probably not nearly quite as innocent as people might like to make out, had no doubt had a word whispered in her ear that there were some ladies of the court whose reputation was perhaps not entirely whiter than white. Uh, and uh, she was actually introduced to Barbara Palmer at Hampton Court on a, a an extremely hot day in the summer with the poor woman, you know, her makeup sliding off her face because as nowadays, Queen's consort didn't go out, um, you know, having just scrubbed a little bit on the cheeks and hoping it would look okay. They were fully made up and, and properly dressed in magnificent robes and all that sort of thing. But that, that's not great if you're indoors in sort of um, 85 degree Fahrenheit heat or something like that. So yeah. uh, she, she, she probably was told who Barbara Palmer was initially as this woman, one of many, glided past her. One can only assume grinning from ear to ear, though we don't actually know that. <laughs> uh, only to have it sort of whispered in her ear as Barbara is about three quarters of the way past her that this is the king's mistress. Uh, whereupon, um, I suppose, with a combination of emotion, fatigue and just frustration, she passed out, or at least she had a severe nosebleed. Uh, which annoyed Charles desperately. I mean, he thought that, you know, that this wasn't a very ladylike or perhaps even a very queenly thing to do. And perhaps it wasn't, though it was understandable under the circumstances, I think. So poor Catherine had to be removed to a cooler inside room. The, the makeup repaired and the nosebleed stopped before she could appear in public again. Uh, but it was a, a very bad beginning to the marriage. I, I think that Barbara Palmer actually didn't show up very much as a lady of the bedchamber. She wanted the money, no doubt, that came with it. Yeah. It had a stipend. But I don't think that she constantly sort of thrust herself grinning into Catherine's presence. She probably had marginally more tact than that, though God knows the woman didn't have very much tact. But uh, uh, and, and so this is a bad beginning to the marriage. There's already been friction um, between the king and some of his um, immediate advisers. And uh, Catherine um, did try and block um, Barbara Palmer's uh, appointment as a lady of the bedchamber, whereupon yeah. her husband ostracised her uh, and had nothing more to do with her for quite a considerable period of time and more or less forbade anyone else in the household to have anything to do with her. Uh, uh, and eventually she had to give in, of course, under yeah. those circumstances. But it, it was... a. A uh, peculiarly callous way of behaving, I think. Um, of course, uh, one can understand it to some degree, but it, it it caused immediate tension in a marriage which had not perhaps started out for purely physical yes. reasons on, on the best of, of uh, footings anyhow. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So if, you, if you're living in a, a time post Henry VIII where, you know, we, we do have divorces, if Charles is not that bothered about it, I mean, he could, could he get rid of her at the time? Or, like, is he still waiting for the cash from Portugal to come through? Um, well, initially that might have been a, a reaction. I don't think it was after more than a few years. I mean, I suppose it is one of the um, more positive things one can say about Charles II, um, that he didn't divorce um, Catherine. He was under pressure to do so at various points in his reign, uh, I mean, while there was still the possibility of her producing children, then it would have been out of the question mm-hmm. to divorce anyhow, you know, whatever he felt or thought. Uh, and that possibility didn't really disappear completely until about 1669. So they'd been married for about seven years before it became obvious. She had a condition whose name I've either suppressed or, or simply don't remember, um, because sadly women can still have it in which she had extremely um, heavy periods, I mean, fluxes, mm-hmm. they were called at the time, uh, which apparently predispose you to uh, miscarriage and not being yeah. able to, to carry um, a fetus to full term. Because she did become pregnant on, on a number of occasions, um, but she lost three or possibly four children in, in the space of that time. Uh, and after about seven years of marriage, it became obvious that, that you know, she just really wasn't going to be capable of, of producing any, uh, at which point uh, I think a decision was made both, well, not a sort of formal decision, but, but what happened basically was that the royal couple separated. They didn't separate on any um, legal or, or, or yeah. even recognised footing, but you know they both began to live much more separate and independent lives. Uh, and one of the things I would just say about poor Catherine's um, menstrual problems and her overall health was that, of course, I mean nowadays uh, menstrual problems have been swept under the carpet. It's a bad metaphor, but you know what I mean, yeah. uh, and, and are only just becoming uh, out into the open more. But in those days, if you were a queen, you found yourself under the, being commented on this in people's diaries, in letters, and everything. You know, everyone knew about this poor woman's problems um, yeah. in, in a way that we would find quite distasteful nowadays. I think, uh, mm. uh, and uh, you know, to. to I, how much she knew of that, I don't know. But of course, if you're at court and you're an intelligent person, which she obviously was, you've yeah. got to assume that people are commenting on this. Uh, and it, it must have been very, very distressing. So perhaps the de facto decision that was made in about 1669 that, that this marriage is not going to produce children, but that Charles wasn't going to divorce her. Um, as I said, he did have some clearly some affection for her. When she fell very ill, he actually did attend her bedside and she started to ramble in her mind. And she asked him, this is, I think, quite pathetic, how the children were, because, she, you know, she this is how fixated she was on, yeah. on being a productive consort. 
Uh, and and in, to Charles's credit, he did stand by her and he stood by her throughout the whole of the Popish plot in the late 1670s uh, and the um, succession crisis, which, of course, embroiled all Catholics as well later on between what, 1679 and 81. Uh, and he, he, he does never seem to have considered um, actually being rid of her. Uh, the reason, I suppose, for that being some personal affection and feeling perhaps a bit of guilt, though Charles is not renowned for having felt guilty about anything, really, I don't <laughs> think. Uh, but also, um, he had, of course, an heir in his brother James, um, whom he, James was probably not one of Charles's favourite siblings, but Charles, like Henry VIII, had this strong feeling of um, of dynasty yeah. uh, and, and that you did not pass the throne to an illegitimate child. In his case, he would have been almost sport for choice, of course. Uh, he had at least four illegitimate sons um, and quite a number of illegitimate daughters as well. Uh, but he, his... Um, I suppose it's both the sort of Tudor and Stuart background, because he's, he's a descendant, of course, of Margaret Tudor, mm. not of Henry VIII, but mm -hmm. uh, anyone like that. That the the, the, um, the 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 dynasty must survive, and it must survive in in a, in a legitimate mode. Yeah. And that I think is why he didn't um, divorce Catherine. Uh, maybe she would have liked to go back to Portugal earlier than she eventually did. But of course, if you think of Anne of Cleves. It's never very good to be a discarded bride. No, no. Just to return to something we've sort of hinted at already, um, you mentioned that uh, Catherine was a Catholic, and you mentioned um, Charles sticking by her during a, the Popish plot. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how Catherine was treated because of her religion, because of her faith? Um, I think Catherine was always perhaps suspect with the general population of the, the country. I think she was personally unpopular mm. uh, and her household um, loved her. She seems to have been one of these women who who uh, attracted the absolute loyalty and devotion of people who knew her and who worked for her and, and around her. Uh, but um, her Catholicism was a problem. Um, of course, uh, Unless you, well, you shouldn't regard Mary the Second as a consort, but she, she was in many respects both a consort and a queen regnant. Mm -hmm. But no Stuart monarch had a, had a Protestant bride. Of course, they were all married mm. to Catholics. From uh, well, Anne of Denmark appears to have converted to Catholicism. She wasn't Catholic when she married James the Sixth and First. But certainly Henrietta Maria, Catherine of Braganza, and then Mary of, of Modena. Subsequently, um, those three Stuart consorts were, were all Catholics. So the, the country was accustomed to that, but also to the kind of tensions that came with it. I mean, Henrietta Maria's Catholicism had made her desperately unpopular. Uh, I don't think Catherine of Braganza as a personality was nearly as unpopular as Henrietta Maria. It, she, she kept a, a, a lower profile and certainly didn't attempt to boss her husband around. Not that Charles II would have taken much notice of her even if she had done <laughs> uh, but um she had her own chapel she was allowed to worship um in her own chapel uh, and with her own confessors and priests which mary of modena when she married james the second while he was still duke of york who, who was a italian catholic princess was not allowed i mean by that time some of the tensions had sort of bubbled over and it was thought more politic that the, the, the new duchess of york should not be allowed to to um to worship publicly, but Catherine was, mm. uh, and she um, she was a very devout lady, um, and and she uh, I don't think she ever 
foisted this on anyone. Um, she didn't attempt to convert uh, Charles in, in any way that we know of. Um, but the fact that she was a practicing Catholic and had been permitted by the terms of her marriage contract to, to practice her, her religion in, in, in Britain uh, rankled with a good many people. I think. Uh, and in particular, of course, it became a problem when this um, spurious priest, Titus Oates, who's one of these people who'd managed to fail at almost anything and had, had actually been uh, attempted to convert to Catholicism and kicked out of a seminary in northern France, um, mostly because he seems to have been rather fond of young boys, I think. But uh, um, that is a completely different story, the Popish block. But I mean, the, the, this whole um, idea that there was a a plot afoot to assassinate Charles, in in which Catherine's name was bandied around, you Mm. know, trying to have him poisoned or assassinated, uh, which caused her great distress. Charles and his brother, the Duke of York, dismissed this as a load of old rubbish. Uh, But, you know, it it became, uh, as these kind of rumours that are based on next to nothing can do, and particularly in a, um, I was going to say a more credulous age, but sometimes I wonder about the age we live in now as being almost <laughs> more credulous in some respects. But but certainly in a credulous age, it, it, it was something that, that attracted popular attention. And Titus Oates was brought before um, the Privy Council with the king and his brother there, who more or less you know, said this man is a fool and a charlatan. Uh, and eventually a number of people um, were tried for sedition and treason and executed. You, you know, he, he caused a great deal of problems before he was finally sort of um, brought to book, as it were, and, and imprisoned and kicked out. Um, but he did try and implicate um, Catherine of Braganza in this. And I think it's greatly to Charles's credit and perhaps also incidentally to the rest of the court that very yeah. little credence was, was put on this at the time. Um, but it, it, it must have made her life quite difficult and alarming. And she was at least reassured by Charles that, that he didn't believe any of this and that he was standing by her. Um, yeah. And I suppose in many respects in the last years of their marriage in the early 1680s, on a level of affection, they were perhaps closer than they had been before all of this blew up. And they did still do sometimes things in common. For example, they, you know, they go to Newmarket to the races and things like that. Um, but basically, uh, Catherine established her own interests. Um, she was very keen on music. Uh, and she brought a lot of musicians over from um, from Portugal uh, and eventually converted even someone like Samuel Pepys, who thought that that, that the kind of choral music of Portugal was ghastly and discordant and awful when he first heard about it. I mean, if you, if you think that that that, that in the English and even the British, I have to be careful what I say here because I'm a very great proponent of Scottish history, um, though not Scottish myself, and, and people do get very sensitive quite rightly about it. But, you know, our, our capacity to be rude about foreigners is nothing new uh, and to look <laughs> down on their culture and customs. And Pepys uh, and especially so. It, exactly, <laughs> Pepys especially so. And Pepys was, of course, half in love in a rather pervy almost sort of way with Barbara Palmer and people. And he, he used to write wonderful lines about seeing her underwear on the um, on a washing line. Because um, that's creepy. not creepy at all, is it? Oh, oh no. he was a proper weirdo, was Pepys. The saints has put it very yeah. gently. Yeah, it was the, yeah. the most unpleasant person in history until Charles Dickens came around. 
Oh, careful. I'm a great um, admirer of Dickens, at least of what he wrote, perhaps not of him as a person. Exactly, yes. (laughs) How does Catherine leave her mark on history? Other than being the wife of Charles II, what does she do herself to to be remembered as as an important figure? Well, I think one of the ways in which she's remembered, I mean, one could put a bit too much emphasis on this, but but it, it yes. is the way that she yes. is mostly remembered in this country is through introducing the drinking of tea uh, as as a, a, an enjoyable beverage wow. rather than some horrid medicinal concoction. I love because, her already. Yes, quite. <laughs> well, it, she she made it fashionable um, um, because of you know it had been um, fashionable in Portugal for some time because of the the Indian connection, uh, and she introduced it as as a polite and enjoyable thing to do. Um, and I suppose it's a measure of of her success as a queen consort um, that this was taken up um, firstly by the, the sort of upper classes and then much more generally and widely. Um, uh, uh, and she also, um, in, in connection with this this sort of uh, Eastern heritage which her country of birth had, um, or which it gave her, uh, she uh, quite quietly revolutionised um, the whole area of interior design um, in the country by introducing, you know, all these wonderful fabrics from the East, um, mm. silks, coloured cottons, calico, um uh, wicker work uh, and all sorts of other uh, her her apartments were um, greatly admired by the diarist John Evelyn for example uh, you, you know as an example of of refined taste and and how you you successfully mix artifacts from another part of the world with with the way that that, that you live here so I, I think it, it, it's it's in um, perhaps almost in areas of, of sort of like public taste, literally with the tea, uh, and in in, mm-hmm. in the wider area of um, refining um, the whole way people, um, the upper classes, look to to furnish and 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 decorate their houses, uh, and this was greatly copied. Um, so uh, Catherine did mm-hmm. leave her mark there. Um, she also left her mark with the arts, not just with the music, which she remained, you know, a great patron of um, uh, of continental singers and, and, and composers, but also um, because she consciously set herself up against um, perhaps the most successful politically, well, uh, I'll take that back because I don't think she was that successful politically. But certainly at the time, Louise de Kerouac, Charles's French mistress, was viewed as having a lot of political influence. And if you're viewed that way by people, uh, you know, in power, then obviously there there is something behind it. But in practice, Charles took no notice of anything anyone ever said to him, really. I mean, the, the idea that he changed policies by something whispered to him over a pillowcase is, is daft. I think he wasn't that kind. He was yeah. very much his own man mm. when it came to, to political things. But... Um, uh, Louise de Carreau was French, of course, and, and in an attempt to counter her her cultural influence, Catherine um, rather ostentatiously patronised Flemish and Italian painters. And she, um, Barbara Palmer, had had herself painted as Mary Magdalene. It was fairly common in, in those days mm. to, to take a, a religious um, 
uh, a religious figure and have yourself represented as them by a court painter. Well, Catherine went ahead and did exactly the same thing. Uh, good for her is is all I would say. Um, and she she wasn't the most attractive of women. It has to be said. Um, she wasn't a great beauty like some of Charles's other mistresses were. Um, but she wasn't a, a, an ugly woman or anything. And she, you know, in her portrait, she she comes across as looking like a. Uh, a serious um, but queenly person, very beautifully dressed and, and all that kind of thing. So I think she, I, I think in, in her cultural interests, um, she, she, she left a mark as well because um, the painters that she patronised mm. were different from, from the, the ones that, that Charles's mistresses, well, Barbara Palmer didn't, well, Barbara Palmer patronised Peter Lilly, the the court painter, um, but but not French painters so much. So uh, I mean, it was a very rich age for artistic patronage, as, as you know. Anyhow, so it's natural that the Queen would have um, wanted to to left, leave her own mark on that. Um, but uh, of course, subsequently, the way that I think she's left her mark on history, which is not known very much here in 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 Britain at all. It is uh, through her Portuguese connections, because as I said when I started this, although we may largely disregard her or, or scarcely pay any attention to her in this country, that is not at all the same in Portugal. And of mm. course, after Charles's death, uh, she had to wait until 1692 before she could go back to Portugal. Her brother, Pedro II, didn't particularly want her. Um, for reasons that are not entirely clear, I don't he just thought her... A sister coming back might might be awkward and an expense on the royal coffers and all that. And um, uh, James II, of course, wanted her to stay because she was a Catholic. And then William and Mary, particularly Mary, whom to whom Catherine had been very kind uh, as a, as an aunt, um, treated her with disdain. And it wasn't until 1692 that she was allowed to go back. But in Portugal, she certainly left her mark because she served. As regent for her brother twice, um, he became ill and his son was too young to, to uh, acquire the regency. She negotiated a very advantageous trade treaty with Britain during the period of her regency and had to steer the country through the um, uh, difficulties of the War of Spanish Succession, which was, of course, raging right in the other, well, uh, you know, the implications of it in the other part of the, 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 Spanish, the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and in Portugal, she is viewed as as an effective and much loved ruler. Uh, and I think this complete contrast between her being overlooked here and revered in the country of her birth is quite an interesting one. So you mentioned there the after Charles has died, because uh, she outlives Charles by a good 20 years. Yeah, she died in 1705. You so, say, yeah. 1705, yeah. yeah. So, so how is she kind of managing Portugal through all those crises? Well, is she, she making the decisions herself? Is she hiring the right advisors? How, how is she controlling this? Well, she didn't have any real control over it until she got back home in 1692. Um, and then she had a period of, of, of regency, which, which um, uh, she stopped after a while because her, her brother was able to take the reins again. And, and then mm. just in the last year or two of her life, um, she, she took over again. She seems to have um, uh, had good judgment on appointing advisors, like you, you were hinting, um, and to have had a clear idea of the international context in which um, Portugal was a player. 
which of course she would have uh, have uh, she, she had a much wider European um, overview through having been so long in in, in Britain um, than she might have had if she just stayed in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, she also knew how how the French government worked. I think one of the things that yeah. surprised and pleased her most on her journey when she left in 1692 was that I think probably because of the ghastly voyage coming there years before, she chose to travel overland through France and was delighted by the way that um, Louis XIV arranged for her to be treated in the places that she stopped. And she was treated as a as a, a regal figure and as a queen. So I think she had um I mean, certainly through all the politics, the difficult, tortuous politics of Charles II's reign, um, she wasn't just on her knees sobbing in front of an altar, as she's sort of sometimes depicted. <laughs> she was actually very much um, working out what was going on. Uh, and if not a direct part of it, there is some influence, uh, some indication that certainly during the succession crisis of the late 1670s, early 1680s, when a concerted attempt was made to to have Charles nominate the Duke of Monmouth, his eldest illegitimate son, uh, as yeah. heir, that that Charles did discuss um, what was happening with her um, and and listen to her advice. Um, so she had become, I suppose, by the end of their marriage, a, a friend and a counsellor, but never, yeah. you know, never a much loved wife. Sadly. Well, thank you very much for that, Linda, because that's they. You know, that's, that's just open my eyes because I, I didn't know a great deal about her and the, the scope of that woman is, is just astonishing. Um, so thank you very much for, uh, for bringing that to our uh, podcast. Yes. Do you feel better for it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I do, I do think there is, uh, I probably should say that there is a, a considerable amount of scholarship going on on, on Catherine at, at the moment. I think, you, you know, whereas um, the Tudors have been nearly done to death, uh, the, the there is more work being done on on the Stuarts and particularly on the Queens, many of whom are, you know, if you've learned them as a child, you could reel off the names, but you don't know anything about them. Uh, and there is, I think, some quite good scholarly work that, as I understand it, being being done on Catherine of Braganza at the moment. Because, of course, one of the ways you get to know people from the past is to look at their household accounts mm. as to how they spent their money uh, and and who they spent it on and, and how. Uh, and I think I'd just like to, to close by by reinforcing what I said, that Catherine was enormously loved by her staff. Uh, I mean, the, the Duke of, um, not the Duke, the, the Earl of Chesterfield, uh, who had been a roué and one of Barbara Palmer's earliest lovers, in fact, was Catherine's Lord Chamberlain and viewed her and said, described her as one of the greatest and most illustrious princesses in the world. And he didn't have to say that. Uh, so mm. I, I, I think it's a nice tribute Um uh, f- from a man who was very much a ladies' man himself, um, to a woman who was no great natural beauty, but who seems to have had a great deal of intelligence and and character. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, thank wonderful. You. Thank you so much, 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about Linda's work, Stuart Royalty, or the going-ons in Charles II's court, then you can and should engage with Linda's excellent range of books, and we will have links to those in the show notes, and you can check out the documentaries and TV history that she's been involved in. We will have links to those as well where we can find them. And finally, you can follow her on Twitter at DrLindaPorter1. But once again, Linda, thank you very much for coming on History Rage. Thank you, guys. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And we would love you to join the ever-growing angry mob on Patreon, as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.